There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature. lover's lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something up-tempo. I want something snappy. Using just her voice, a ukulele, and a drum, Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards is a one-woman power soul band. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis of WBEZ and Columbia College. We've got Tune Yards in the studio, and later it's my turn at the Desert Island Jukebox. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Big news in the world of entertainment music file sharing. Uh, we have been reporting on this story for a number of years and finally is becoming a reality in the United States. The major U.S. Internet service providers have entered into a voluntary agreement with the music and movie industries to police users who infringe on copyright. What this means is you've got these service providers, the AT&Ts, Verizons, Comcast, Cablevisions, and Time Warner Cables of the world, in agreement with the Motion Picture Association of America and the Recording Industry Association of America to monitor their users for infringing activity. If they see some of their users downloading large amounts of material that could be entertainment-oriented, that could be infringing on copyright, they will issue a warning shot to that user and say, no, 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 stop this activity. By the fifth or sixth warning shot, they could start slowing down your uh, Internet service. They could call you into the office for a meeting with Big Brother and say, don't do this again. Now, so far, this initiative is being framed as educational rather than punitive. But, Jim, I think it's interesting where this could lead. We have seen these kind of laws imposed via the governments in countries like France, South Korea, and New Zealand. As yet, the United States government hasn't gotten involved. But the fact that the service providers are now willing to act as police for these major entertainment industries is a major step in potentially the wrong direction. I understand that the entertainment industries have a big problem here with infringement, but it'll be interesting to see how far the ISPs go in policing it. Well, the industry absolutely is paranoid about illegal downloading, Greg, but it has a small reason to celebrate for the first half of 2011, at least. Album sales are up for the first time in six years. They're only up 1%, but they're up, okay? (laughs) This includes CDs, digital albums, LPs, and other media. The interesting thing about this spike, this 1% spike in in sales of music, is there are a couple of uh, superstars. Adele has the best-selling album of the year at 2.5 million copies, but a lot of the other releases that, that are spiking sales are older, 18 months or older, or in some cases really old. 
catalog sales. Journey and Credence Clearwater Revival best ofs are a big part of this number. Why are people suddenly paying for this older music? I have no idea. But then I don't understand why anybody would ever pay for a Journey record anyway. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that was a little bit of the song Gangsta by our guest this week, Tune Yards. Jimmy, you and I have been talking about this group quite a bit this year. The Tune Yards' second album, Who Kill, made our mid-year top tens. It was my favorite album of the first six months of this year, and they're one of the most anticipated acts of this month's Pitchfork Music Festival. It's a big climb for their group, which began as a one-woman act featuring Meryl Garbus. She's a New England native, now based in Oakland, creates these live drum loops and layers them with ukulele and her big, powerful, resonant voice. It's a tremendous combination of sounds as a one-woman band. Lately, she's added bassist Nate Brenner and a horn section to the lineup. But the central sound influence in her music is Afropop. Now, she's following a long Western tradition of artists who have appropriated African rhythms. We're talking about everybody from Paul Simon to Vampire Weekend. But she goes much deeper to the source. So we began our conversation by asking Meryl how Africa became so important to her. I mean, I guess it started when I was 10 and my aunt and uncle moved to Kenya for the year and I got pretty obsessed with with Africa in general, being from a small suburban town wanting to know what else was out there in the world. So when I got to college, I studied Kiswahili language, Swahili. And started listening to, you know, it, it did start with Paul Simon, I got to say. Mm-hmm. And also, who else was I listening to? Ayub Ogata, a Kenyan musician, and um, Hukwe Zawose was a huge discovery for me. So there are all these new sounds, essentially. I was tracing these sounds that I, I was, you know, slowly becoming obsessed with all back to Africa. And so there I was in Kenya doing a, you know, college study abroad. It was it was mm-hmm. just a suburban kid in, in Kenya doing a study abroad. <laughs> and and lo and behold, I found myself studying Tarab music, Tarabu, on the coast of Kenya. And, you know, playing, I played old-timey fiddle because my dad had taught me that. So I brought, I had my fiddle with me uh, in Africa some, somehow. And uh, I was playing, I found myself playing on a rooftop with these Tarab musicians and, on the island of Lamu. So I, I was able to have a lot of rich experiences in Africa, I think, as a result of playing music and, and listening to it. What was it about those African records that was appealing to you that you weren't hearing in uh, Western pop music? That's a good question. I, I think mostly it was rhythmic and also the vocal texture that I had never really heard before. I mean, Zat Mama, there there are these those pygmy, you know, that kind of really breathy ooze that I hadn't heard before. And it was so fun to, you know, being a singer to experiment with those kind of textures. And also having grown up in the 80s and being very appreciative of, of 80s dance music, I think at a certain point in the 90s, I was looking for something more. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, I usually found that through hip hop. But to find that, you know, I, th- I think I started finding that taking African dance classes too, of different ways to move 
my butt. <laughs> um, and the, the, inter- the interesting polyrhythms, I guess, that make a person move differently, I think. So everything coalesced. You know, I, I, don't, I don't claim to be any more legitimate than any other African-influenced musician. So, so your main acts, your first acts was was fiddle. Well, at the age of six, piano. I don't know if I mm. could call it an axe when I was that little. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <But> yeah. <laughs> yeah, first piano. My mom's a piano teacher, so took piano until I started having crying fits at the piano with her at age thirteen, and then mm. that stopped. Mm. And then it was mostly singing in magical choirs in high school. And then my senior year of college, my dad bought me a fiddle, and I started to play. Wow! So you were obsessed with music growing up. True, even though looking back on it, you know, it seems very silly that I said, I, all I know is that I don't want to be a musician when I grow up because that's what my parents were. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yes, I was, I was, it was all around me and I think I, you know, I, I definitely took that for granted until these days where I get asked about it all the time and I think, wow, it was, you know, it's, it's in my blood. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, before we continue, why don't we uh, have a song? What are we going to hear, Meryl? I think we're going to do Doorstep for you guys. And with two feet on the ground, and 
And I thought my first joy in life with my head on his chest And his trouble came from looking out for all the rest Policeman chop off head and crossing right over my is tune yards on sound opinions with the song doorstep from album number two who kill uh merrill but we want to pick up the story and and get you coming back from africa and getting into indie rock first there was a different band right sister soupy yes okay what was that about and then how did you get to tune yards let's see there was a the years in there where i was a puppeteer and you know i was not satisfied with the maybe six or seven people who would come to puppet shows and my pocketbook was also not satisfied. So I, I quit my puppeteering job and moved in with my parents at the age of 26, a glorious moment in my life. <laughs> I was just singing. You know, my mom had, had bought me this tenor ukulele at an Army-Navy store, and she, she said, here, have this. And I started writing these sad songs. And Nate and I actually met working at this summer camp. I was teaching puppetry, and he was teaching jazz and upright bass. And this this camp apple farm in new jersey and there we were i was playing music with my friend patrick gregoire who i also met there and songs were becoming my my main thing um and patrick and i stayed in touch he lived in montreal and i kept traveling back and forth and patrick said you know your songs are great and you could probably make make a make money doing that and i thought no 
there's no money in the arts. <laughs> and um, which, you know, is arguable. <laughs> there's not a lot of money in the arts. But and at the same around the same time, Patrick was in the, this band Islands. And when he was touring with Islands, I would work on my solo stuff, which was, you know, I, I didn't I said, well, I better be able to do everything myself then because I don't want to wait around for anybody. <laughs> so that's where the looping pedal came in of just wanting to create my own rhythm section to play along to. Okay, so I gotta I gotta ask about the uke. I wrote a snarky shooting from the hip piece uh, for my blog a couple of weeks back about just ukuleles being lame. I figure when Eddie Vedder puts out a whole album of ukulele music, you know the uke is done. And I gotta say, you know, you use it in a much different way. But you know, you're such a powerful musician, and that's such a tiny little thing. Mm-hmm. Explain to me the allure of the uke. Okay, well for me it was. It was un- an unassuming instrument. I was always scared off by the guitar because it had six strings instead of four. <laughs> too, too, too many strings. Two more to break uh, and two more to tune. Indeed, yeah. yeah. But it was about the songs versus the instrument. With with mm. an unassuming instrument, you could just the songs were the the priority. The other thing is that I've I find this thing as an as an improviser and as a musician where if you if you are disoriented with the instrument that you're using it begets a lot more creativity. And to me, that's what it was. I, you know, I hadn't played an instrument like that, but I didn't know how to play it. I barely could, I, I still can barely name the chords that I'm playing when I'm playing them. I have to learn what I'm playing. <laughs> it's almost this physical exercise. It's like playing with building blocks or something, mm. this thing in your hand, and you can really toy around with it in this way. It's where you don't feel threatened by the instrument itself or needing to master it. At least in my case, I don't. <laughs> well, it was a one-man or uh, one-woman band. I mean, did you envision Tune Yards as ever getting out of out of the bedroom? Uh, there was always a performance element. I think because I I do you know I studied theater and I I grew out of my shy teenage personality through performance. But I don't think I ever could have imagined the amounts of people, the numbers of people that we would have played for, nor touring in a van around this band with you know. It, I mean, it's been Nate and I for. A long time now, and that that seemed you know ukulele sized mm-hmm. to be the two of us in Nate's Honda Fit, um, <laughs> listening to Sound Opinions in the mountains of wherever we were. <laughs> um, so this this is really new for me to to be in a big van and be invited to festivals like the Pitchfork Festival or South by Southwest or whatever it is. Um, no, I don't think I would have envisioned that. We'll have more of our conversation with Merrill Garbus of Tune Yards after a short break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Then later in the show, I'll get stranded with the Desert Island Jukebox.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And you've been listening to our interview with Merrill Garbus of Tune Yards. That's the band's breakout hit, Business, featuring Merrill on lead vocals, backup vocals, ukulele, and drums. People who've seen her live know that it's an amazing performance. Spontaneous, energetic, it's got the potential for big returns or big failure. Let's return to our conversation there. We asked Merrill about developing this unique performance style. Tell me, but all my wisdom departed, but... I, I think that's something that I've always appreciated in performance is is impossibility. Uh, I guess magic is a ch- more cheesy word for that. It first started out by just what I wanted to hear in my head, and then I, with the looping pedal, I thought, well, why can't I do that myself? Hatari was really, the, off the first album, was w- the first song where I used the floor tom on stage, and it was so satisfying just to hit something really hard. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> originally I had put the ukulele through the looping pedal, and so I would do these dainty little tapping things on the ukulele and just to you know, whack something really hard was really nice. Mm-hmm. And I think it just grew from there, you know, just, just improvising by myself in a studio. I was amazed with how much I could do on my own. There was some stubbornness in there. Mm-hmm. To, and, and same with the live show. I think it, I do want to push myself to do as much as I can and to create the impossible and to be, to be a person. And, and I think a, quite a bit of me is also, you know, to be a woman doing all of this by myself was, was really has been important, particularly in that sense of, you know, being able to create this world on stage and also to say I produce my own albums. That's been really, really important to me as well. So so, so 4AD comes along, one of the most respected independent labels in the world for 30 some years. What was your feeling about that? Utter skepticism, I got to say. I read too many books on, on record labels. Mm-hmm. Um it's been quite the opposite, but it's taken me a long time to to trust the people that I'm working with because there are just too many stories out there. You know, I think it was just that when someone calls you out of the blue and says, I want to come, like, Meryl, we're from England, we want to come to your gig and sign you to a British record. You know, like, it's how do you trust somebody that sounds like that? Sorry, guys. But it's too, it's too good to be true. It's like this weird movie. So being the skeptic that I am and, and you know, even good news. I was reading Tina Fey's biography and she says something about like, I'm really good at making good news into something that's anxiety producing somehow. <laughs> so that's what it was for me. Mm-hmm. So far, so good. But we've been focusing on the sound, uh, Meryl, and I want to ask you about the lyrics. You know, we heard Doorstep, which seems to me a pretty horrifying recounting of a woman watching her lover shot right on the doorstep. What inspired you to write that? And what inspires you to write in general? Well, that song was definitely around the time that there was a lot of conflict in the Oakland community around the shooting of Oscar Grant and and more specifically the sentencing of the cop that shot him. And, you know, I was new. I just moved to Oakland not so long ago. So I was new there and it was difficult for me to sort of find my my place, I think, in that community. And it was just a way that I was trying to understand any bit of that situation. And 
And that's a hard thing because, you know, of course, I can never understand that without going through it. But I feel like songwriting is an opportunity for me to to be empathetic, I guess. I mean, have this moment of walking in someone else's shoes. And um, and I just do that the best that I can. So And to ask questions, too, because in Riot Riot, the police officer is handcuffing your brother and you kind of have a crush on the police officer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I love love dichotomies. that's what it's about I mean this asking question thing you know I I have no answers I just feel that art is a way that that we can start discussions and that to me you know I feel that my job as a performer and songwriter is to is to throw questions in people's faces you know quite quite aggressively (laughs) excellent why don't we go to another song? And before we get into this one, whatever you're going to play next, tell us how you, how it's put together. Because, you, mm-hmm. you know, doorstep, I mean, starts, you know, two beats on the floor, Tom, and then you loop them, and then two beats on the snare, and you loop them. <laughs> and all those vocals we heard, which at some point is like six or seven overlapping lines, are all you. Mm-hmm. So, so tell it, take us a little bit, yeah, how you do it, because it's so cool to watch. All right. Well, shall we start the song that way as I describe it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that would be fun. Okay. You want to do power next? Sure. Okay. So we'll do power. So so this song, the trick with this touring season is that I added another looping pedal. So I've got two. So the first thing I do is I'm going to loop the drums. That's the percussion loop. So. And you can probably hear me breathing because that's how I keep the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, there was a floor tom. Here's a snare. So there's the basic loop. Quite imperfect, I may add, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it'll do. Um, so that's the percussion part of the loop. New string on the ukulele. It's a little flat. So now I'm going to add uh, uh, the second second vocal loop.
Wow. <laughs> Power by Coonyards on Sound Opinions. Matt, the saxophonist over there, and he puts his fist up in the air in the victory <laughs> song. Because <laughs> you never know. I gather that sometimes you step on those pedals, and you're never quite sure if they're going to come in where you want them to. Mm-hmm. And that's what I kind of There's this punk rock kind of ramshackle bargain basement approach to this technology. You are not a slave to it. It's, it's helping you or it's not, and you're going to keep rolling anyway. Yeah. That's the way it's got to be. It's, it, you have to roll with it because many times out of ten, something will be different than you think it will be. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's great. The technology merging with, I don't know, I, I guess primal, uninhibited. It's amazing how many performers you think about when they do come up on stage. They seem inhibited by that environment. Did you ever feel that way? Because I certainly don't sense it now. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, touring with Sister Subi, that was my first, you know, I hadn't touched a guitar amp. The the ukulele sound is now pretty dialed in, but at in the beginning, it was just me and my dinky ukulele, and I would plug it, put a crappy pickup on the outside, and it was terrifying. It, you know, <laughs> feedback and, you know, sound people would be yelling at me and screaming at me for not knowing, you know, my, my technology. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I, I think, though, that I'm still sort of terrified by these pedals, but now I know they're kinks. You know, I know that sometimes this, when I press the looping pedal, it will flash at me instead of behaving. And in that case, <laughs> I have to reset it and say you know, pat it a little bit and say, come on. Um, I might have said this a lot in interviews, but, you know, being a puppeteer, you're working with a thing, an object. And my my teachers at Sand Glass Theater, where I studied puppetry, they, they would say, what if your puppet's arm falls off? That, you know, what do you do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because the, the audience is right there watching the puppet's arm fall. <laughs> the, the answer is you do not pretend that the arm has not fallen off. <laughs> but you <laughs> you use this beautiful moment where you, you have the audience right in the palm of your hand, really. I mean, it's the most valuable moment. And I think that's what it is with the looping, too, is that people are sort of, you know, they're holding their breath for me <laughs> mm-hmm. and hoping that I get it right. And and especially now, you know, they're on my side. It was not always that way, but I think <laughs> um, lately they're, you know, the kind audiences here in Chicago and elsewhere have been really on my side and, and uh, that feels good. So, you know, so much anticipation, you know, one of the most anticipated acts at South by Southwest, people wanted to see you, Pitchfork Music Festival, other huge gigs. I mean, I'm playing to 18,000 people in a giant field. Did you ever think you'd get to this point when you were sleeping in the car and eating corn chips? <laughs> Not then. There were some years in there where I didn't know. You just don't. I think a lot of people in their 20s, mid-20s, don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, per se. Especially, I found as an artist, it's hard to know what you're aiming for. A little bit, yeah. I mean, I have to admit that they're the same prideful, stubborn part of me knew that I was onto something when I first started doing those tune yard songs. I, I had never heard anything like them and and I was intrigued by that. And and that might sound weird as if it's separate than me, but the song sorta of did feel separate from me. And I think that's why I called it Tune Yards because I wrote a song where I said, you know, we'll fly over tune yards in our dreams, meaning we will go harvest songs in the middle of the night mm. <laughs> in our sleep. And I like that feeling that the the songs are not completely based on my ego or my talent or my non-talent or whatever it is, but that they are, exist and I can be of service to them. So I think there was a part of me that, you know, believed that people would like this music. And that as soon as I started touring it and performing, that was my experience that people were really excited by it. 
It's interesting, too, because we started this conversation by talking about your experience in Africa, and in some ways I think you've circled back to that now. Uh, you've gotten to a place where you can sort of start incorporating that into your music. And sometimes it's not only explicit but implicit. When I'm thinking about the joy and uninhibited nature of their vocalizing, when they would be singing about everything from harvesting the crop to, you know, the dictator, you know, mm-hmm. living down the block. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't matter. It was still going to be joyous. But you've thought long and hard about this issue about a relatively privileged Western person incorporating the rhythm and music and spirit of third world music into your own thing. What is it you hope to accomplish by bringing that sort of music into your into your thing? In some ways, I wish that I I didn't feel the need to. I mean, in some ways, I wish that I had followed my father's fiddle music and really incorporated American folk traditions, though I think that I actually do in in ways that people don't recognize. But even those traditions came from African-Americans who came to this country and influenced um, Appalachian folk music. So these were sounds and ideas that I was hearing in my head and couldn't control. We're all thieving from each other. You know, African musicians are thieving from American musicians and vice versa. But I guess what I what I love about being in the public eye a little bit more, though it, it has its challenges. I love being able to to talk about these things. I mean, the fact that we get to, as you say, speak about something that, that people aren't talking about enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, it gets brought up in, in colleges, I think, in, mm-hmm. in classrooms. But to really, in the music industry, be, be discussing it, it really doesn't happen a whole lot. And, um, and you know, it's not I, I do think that in my future, there is more of that conversation to be had. And then also this more of, you know, how this will play out in my life. Will I, how will I give back, you know, how will I give this, these opportunities that I have as a Western musician to other African musicians or musicians from around the world? I think that's, you know, something that I still need to prove to myself mostly of how I will make that happen. But um, it's been, it's been amazing to me that I get to just bring these things up and, and have these, these dialogues and, um, and so far, you know, have not sort of cowered behind anything. But I, I've been really trying to engage in, in the questions and not, not say, okay, well, fine. I won't have any African influence in my music anymore. <laughs> fine. I won't sing in Swahili or I won't, you know, I can't do that. So the only other thing I can do is really engage in the conversation. Amazing story. We're here at uh, Sound Opinions with Tune Yards. Meryl, how about another song? Sure. This will be business, I guess. Speaking of African-influenced music, I think you can... You can hear some Tony Allen in here for sure. Thank you. 
that song. Can I just say that? (laughs) (laughs) So today, Toon Yards has been our guest on Sound Opinions, Meryl Garbus with uh, Nate, Matt, and Casey. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. We've got more of Toon Yards' live performance at soundopinions.org, including video of Meryl's drum-looping tutorial on the song Pow Up. And we want to hear from you. What is your favorite breakout artist of the year? You can share it with us at 888-859-1800. 
When we return to Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, it's my turn at the Desert Island Jukebox. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis. We've charted a sailboat for the desert island to play a record we cannot live without, and this week it is Jim's turn. Greg, I wanted to uh, riff on Merrill Garbus of Tune Yard's fondness for African rhythms, which is certainly not a new thing in pop music, although with Tune Yards and Vampire Weekend, there's a real resurgence now. I could play Peter Gabriel, right? I could play Paul Simon. I want to do something different from the New Wave era in the UK, 1980 to 1983, the late lamented band Bow Wow Wow. What a great story. After the Sex Pistols explode, Malcolm McLaren and his partner Vivian Westwood, the fashion designer, decide we have to invent another new band, much like the Monkees. The first thing they do is steal the three instrumentalists from Adam Ant. Then they want to cast a lead singer. Initially, there's this tall, goofy-looking guy who would become Boy George, but they think, no, this is not going to quite work. They eventually find a young woman. She's only 14 years old. She is working at a dry cleaner's and singing along to a Stevie Wonder song on the radio. Annabella Lewin becomes the face and the voice of Bow Wow Wow. Now, Malcolm McLaren was an expert in courting controversy, of course. He'd been through it with the Sex Pistols, Greg. There was some outrage that this young woman, she's only 14, she posed naked for the photo on the cover of one of the early recordings. It was based on a French painting. Her mother said she was being exploited. But Annabella herself was was strong and powerful, and I think she was really having a good time. This combination of playground chants and these cool melodies, and most of all, the drums. It was all about the drums. The Burundi Beat, as it was called. Robert Palmer, the great rock critic for the New York Times, wrote a piece in 1981 about the source of this drumming. Apparently, in 1968, some French anthropologists recorded a group of 25 drummers in the East African nation of Burundi sitting and playing this rhythm. And, and much of what Bow Wow Wow did, and Adam Ant before, came from this recording. The Burundi drummers were later tracked down and asked, did you mind that these Westerners hmm. took your drums? And they said, we didn't like Adam Ant. He just stole the drums. But Bow Wow Wow put a unique spin on it. We didn't mind them. We liked them. 
Everybody liked Bow Wow Wow, except for the record companies, because on top of this underage sex thing with Annabella, they were initially signed to EMI, and one of their first singles was called C30, C60, C90, Go! You have to put the exclamation point there, right? It was released as a cassette single. The song was on the first side. The second side was blank. For those who don't know, Greg, C30 was a 30-minute cassette. C60 was 60 minutes. This technology, ancient history, right? This was a statement by McLaren about this new technology of home cassette taping. Mm. Why would you have to buy music when you can just tape it? Does (laughs) this sound like the news story we did at the top of the show? Mm -hmm. Digital downloading. This is not new. These controversies are never new. EMI actually wound up dropping the group because they were advocating going out and taping music. What's wrong with that? Anyway, here is that wonderful early single, C30, C60, C90 Go by Bow Wow Wow on Sound Opinions. Wow, 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 with C30, C60, C90, go. My Desert Island Jukebox pick for the week. The Sound Opinions Desert Island Jukebox is supported by Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark bourbon, it is what it isn't. What do we have on the show next week? Jim, next week we have a conversation with the indie rock godfather, Bob Mould. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn and Jason Saldana with the assistance of Annie Minoff. Our intern is Kobe Ashpiss, and our fearless leader, our executive producer, is Tori Southside Malatia, sort of our Malcolm McLaren.
connected. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hello, Sound Opinion. It's Greg. I live in Las Vegas. It's 106 and uh, pretty brutal outside. Love the Wax Tracks show today. I grew up outside of Chicago, and that was my go-to record store under the L. And uh, that's where I bought my first New Order record, my first uh, Jesus and Mary Chain Naked Ray Gun ministry. Uh, great to hear that that label actually got a little little credibility, man. Talk to you soon. Jack Silbert, Hoboken, New Jersey. I wanted to thank you, Greg, for your, your kind, your perceptive tribute to uh, Clarence Clemens. But, uh, uh, Jim, was it, was it really the best time to once again t- take cheap shots at, at Springsteen and, and at Clarence? Now, you're clearly in the critical minority, you know, on, on this topic. And that's not just mainstream rock circles, but also the indie rock community. That is totally fine. We're all entitled to our opinions. But your timing for these, these mean-spirited comments, while so many of us are, are still in mourning, uh, it just came across as, as petty, and uh, it just didn't reflect well on you as, as a person. Thanks very much. Hi, this is Paulie D. from Philadelphia. I just want to concur with you about Beyonce's thing and that over-emotional singing in general. It's just bloated. There's no subtlety. There's no irony. It's way too in-your-face all the time. I also wanted to say something about Henry Mancini and Peter Gunn. You can see whole shows on YouTube. The Peter Gunn theme, Clapton plays it works it into his version of Hideaway on that famous John Mayall Blues Breakers record. Take care. Talk to you later. Hi, Jim. Greg. Your new story on songwriting expenditures reminded me of a song I thought of for the Tax Day episode, and that is Money, Money, Money by South African reggae artist Lucky Dubek. for the topic, but honestly, I'm really just suggesting it as a tribute to Lucky. I think he was an amazing singer, songwriter, and his death in 2007 was just so sad. Thanks, guys. Reed May from Springfield, Virginia, calling about your last show featuring the Wax Tracks records and Beyonce review. I agree that Beyonce's album sounds like it was made by the Terminator and essentially lacks the human element. However, there's definitely a lot of innovative sounds and tech tricks used on the album. 
maybe listeners will be able to relate more to the technology when it gets used by artists from the homegrown side of the music world instead of from the red carpet realm. Just look at Wax Tracks artists. They weren't the first musicians to make electronic music, but they were the first to give it soul. Here's to the future. Thanks for the show. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.